I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Detective Christine Holt heard the When Dating Hurts podcast and became a fervent follower. She's even used it for training purposes. She contacted me and offered to be interviewed. In our discussion, Christine talks about a case that stays with her years after it was successfully handled. I must warn you, this episode will be very difficult to listen to in some places. So this is your content warning. Here's my interview with Detective Holt. Christine Holt has been in law enforcement for 21 years. I'm excited to speak with Christine today because of her many experiences she can tell us about and we can learn so much from her. Christine, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me. We do have something in common. Um, I didn't know that until we spoke just moments ago. Yes, I have actually listened to your podcast for several months. One of the reasons why that drew me to your podcast is your story with your daughter, Kristen, and, and losing your daughter. I myself was also in the same unfortunate group that you're in. I've lost two of my adult children as well. Yeah, that's really horrible. I'm so sorry. And both of those were uh, violently, I will say. So I recognize the work that you're doing in honoring your daughter's memory. And I've always felt that the the hurt that we go through as parents who've lost children, those things can be sometimes channeled to do great things. And I look at things like uh, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers who have set out and has made huge strides in speaking out against drinking and driving. John Walsh is another person that has just done incredible things. And I really believe in my heart that those things are done through the pain of losing children. And so I, I just wanted to take a moment to let you know that I recognize the passion that you have for what you're doing through your own pain and through honoring your daughter. As bad as this hurts to say this, that you're honoring her daughter and helping somebody else, that her tragedy is not meaningless. I really appreciate that. Christine, how did you lose your children? In 2017, my son, who was 27 years old, was shot when some neighbors had gotten into an argument and these neighbors began shooting. And then my son was struck. He was picking up his son from his in-laws house after work. And so he was struck and killed um, by a single bullet. Oh my. Oh. In April of 2020, my daughter, she was killed in a car accident with an 18 wheeler, oh, which gee. being oh. in 2020, you know, was the, the beginning of, of COVID. So. Oh, that's right. Sure it was. That brought a whole new perspective of grief. And, you know, you really learn your coping skills when all of those things, uh, your family support, any outreach, her funeral had to have just 10 people. So that was a, a challenge in itself. And then I, I have adopted my granddaughter who I had to then homeschool during that time. You adopted her, huh? Yes. Initially, huh. I thought I was going to retire for about a year. I, I did. I took about a year off, but I'm back into it now with another department. It's good and it's bad, the same as you. I have a different perspective of victims of crime because I've kind of been on both sides of it. So it really, it really, I believe, helps in my work to know where I try not to make a victim re-victimized again. That happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Yes, it, unfortunately it does. And, and not necessarily, it's just the way the system's unfortunately designed. And some of my work, I have shared my story sort of like you to kind of give them some reassurance that, hey, I'm, I get it. I'm here for you. And this is the best or what I can do for you and help in your situation. So Christine, I want you to talk about what you think we should know about because you have listened to some of our episodes and you bring a perspective we don't get that often. 
So please just go ahead and take over. Yes. So I began my law enforcement career in 2002. I would say between 2009, 2010, I went into investigations and somehow in there, in small rural counties, we're divided in usually property crimes and crimes against people. So I was a crimes against persons detective and and I have worked numerous cases, unfortunately, especially when it comes to domestic violence. But there's always been a case that I guess you would say I've kept close to my heart because of the impact of the story. And most of all is Lisa, the, the victim in this case, is just a true hero in my eyes. And the extraordinary things that she endured during that time. And I'm actually still in contact with Lisa. Um, some through all these years. This happened in 2012. Here we are, years and years later, dec- decade later. Yes. And even past her story was being a survivor afterwards. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people think when we watch the movies, there's you survive something, there's a happy ending, and all is well. But no one really sees a lot of the recovery process that goes into what someone who survives the ordeal like Lisa survived and then had to continue to work through that survival. But for me, the story began like any other day. I had just gotten off work, just made it home. I received a call from our dispatcher. I was the on-call detective at the time of a woman who was found on the side of the road that had been hiding in the woods with two small children. Oh, gee. She was... It was a teacher that that saw her on the side of the road waving for help, picked her up. She was transported to a hospital. What time of day was she found? I would say it was roughly 4 p.m. And what time of year? It was about April. It was about this time of year, yeah. It's not that dark yet. No, no, especially here. Texas, yes. So Lisa was transported to the hospital. I began receiving phone calls thereafter because... We have responding deputies that responded to the original call. And in the hospital that she at, she was at was a major hospital. It was a large hospital. And the deputy informed me that the hospital locked itself down. Because of her situation? Yes. They thought the perpetrator might come rolling in there? Yes. Yes. They were afraid that he was going to come in. He was going to, what, like finish the job he started, you mean? Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. I've never seen that before, and I haven't seen a hospital do that since. If there is such a thing as most cases, when somebody, I don't know exactly what he did, you haven't told us, but I would think most of the time someone who does something horrible or dramatic or, you know, the perpetrator usually skips. I mean, they're going to go, right? They're going to go the opposite direction of, they're going to, they want to get away, don't they? Typically. Yes. Yes. Everybody's thinking this guy's, this guy's going to come in there and shut her down. That's the hospital's fears. So for me, I I go to the hospital. I had to show my credentials to get into the hospital. And when I walked into the emergency room, I see a a female that probably weighed maybe in the upper 80s. She didn't weigh very much. She was just small in stature, is that? She was small, but she had also been starved um, for quite a while. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. Her Her head looked like it had been scalped. Oh, and the wounds on her, because she'd been out into the woods, started becoming infected. How long would you suppose she was in the woods? She was in the woods for three days and two nights with two small children oh. from the ages of, and it's it's been a while, so I'm, I may be misquoting their ages, sure. but they were toddler age oh. babies. Oh. So Lisa, I, I come in. I'm taking in what I see, the injuries. And Lisa was so desperate when she started talking to me. But unbeknownst to me at that time, she had been enduring this all alone for about seven years. Mm. And she just, she knew that he was going to kill her this time. So she was desperate for help. And this is the first time she's reached out for help. The police had never been called to her house. Her family had not had contact with her and think five years at this time. And so when she began to tell her story, she poured out seven years at one time. While she's still in the ER? Yes. Yes. So I'm just trying to put together everything that she's saying when you're hearing a story for the first time that all these things just happened in these three days. As the investigation went on, 
I learned that Lisa had been pretty much locked in a room with a padlock on the outside and without much food, just what her husband, Josh Holden, would give her. Mm. I do believe that the progression of this abuse was slowly and just continually gotten worse to where the day that she left, she knew was going to, if she didn't get out, was going to be the last day she had. What age was she? Would you just suppose? She was 27 at that time. She had started this when she was about 20. She had just pretty much moved out of her parents' house. Another thing with Lisa's story, and I'm sorry I'm bouncing all over the place with this, but Lisa was adopted by her foster mother. So at a young age, she was six. So at a young age, Lisa suffered abuse from the hands of her own parents. The adoptive parents or the, 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 her the biological, biological parents? Yes. Oh, my. Yes. And so uh. Lisa was adopted by her foster parents, Lisa and her siblings. In my opinion, I think that Lisa started out her, she didn't have a strong foundation. So she was, she was a perfect target for somebody like Josh, you know, that just had a rough start and was easily to go as a victim. I I could never determine if somebody, if, if these guys that do, that are abusers detect this or intentionally do this, that is one answer I'll never know. But Lisa was definitely a good target for Josh. She, she uh, graduated she was going to go to college or started college when she met Josh. And again, trying not to speak for Lisa, but from the conversations I've had with her, you know, she just wanted a home of her own, kids of her own, someone that loved her. You know, she was really missing some things in her life that she was hoping that Josh would fulfill for. Yeah. I mean, these are reasonable things to, to have a nice life, yes. you know, and have somebody who cares about you and settle down and all those things, right? So one of the things that Josh did was he moved Lisa to a rural location and he began when she, she initially she worked and he began being very jealous of her, accusing her of having affairs, which I often hear that as well. Yes, I do too. So he began accusing her of having affairs, which in turn would make her try to prove to him any way that she can that she's not having affairs. So she, she gave up her own freedom. She gave up her job. And the unique thing about domestic violence in rural areas like this, there's not resources that there would be in some of the city or larger metropolitan areas. There's no bus lines. There's not a lot of resources as far as outreach for domestic violence. She was really isolated. So it was easier to isolate her in a rural area than, say, somebody that would be in a metropolitan area. So then he began working on her with her family. How does that part work? In this particular case, and all cases are different. Would this be like trying to get her to turn on her own family? Yes, yes. So so that, that again, is taking away another barrier of outreach, of, of trying to get help. Another way to isolate her. Yes, yeah, so he put it in her head that her family didn't love her. And then again, she was just doing everything that she could to prove to him that she loved him and she was faithful. And then they had their first daughter. And then shortly after, the, they had two other daughters. And again, Lisa was just home with her kids. More so than ever, right? Yes, more so than ever. Another thing that Josh did in my conversations with Lisa is he would put it in her head that if she called the police, law enforcement would just take her kids from her. She just endured a lot of stuff huh. in the process of that. Like I said, things began slow on the progress of that and then just turned worse. When we were looking for Josh to arrest him and, and through the search warrant, we went to the house. The house was unbelievable in the sense of everything that Lisa told me at the hospital was just laid out in the house. I mean, the, the weapons that he used on her was there. The cameras inside the house, the locks on the outside of the bedrooms, I guess maybe to kind of back up what led Lisa to flee. Lisa, Josh began an argument with Lisa because he told her to get up and get their seven-year-old daughter ready for school. Everyone was running late, so he began taking it out on Lisa. And he took, the best I could describe it, it was like a stiff Romex wire 
and that he had bent and shaped into like a like a tennis racket. And he began hitting her with this Romex wire all over her body, her head. He then took a bat and swung a bat a couple of times at her on her legs, which she had her leg was broken and fractured in some places from the bat. Um, so in the course of that, he went outside to take their daughter to school and the truck wouldn't start. So if he wasn't angry enough, right? Yep. Were the kids there watching this taking place? Yes. It wasn't down the hall and they were busy. So yes, the house that they lived in wasn't a big house. So there would be no way that the kids wouldn't have known. So anything that happens, everybody's aware of it in that house. Okay. So he goes out to the truck. It won't start. So the truck would not start. He took a pair of jumper cables. He went back into the house and beat her severely with the jumper cables. Hmm. I believe that's where most of the damage to her head came. So when I seen her in the hospital, she, again, the best way to describe it, she looked like she had been scalped. She almost had no hair left. Oh, my God. Um, that's so bad. And so at that, at that point, he got the truck started, and he told her, I'm dropping our daughter off to school. When I get back, I'm going to kill you. Oh. So instead of locking her back in her room, she was able to get out of the house, but she had two toddlers with her, and she's in a rural area. So out of desperation, she leaves, she leaves her house with the two toddlers. We're nowhere to go, no yes. phone. He didn't allow her to have a phone. After I got the evidence from the search warrant, I was able to see what had happened on the outside cameras. He had, Before that, he had destroyed what had happened on the inside of the house during this time, but he didn't, he wasn't able to move fast enough to get what happened on the outside. But you could see Lisa and those two yep. toddler children leaving the house and it, it, it was heartbreaking. Her badly limping yes. away, I'm sure. Horribly. Yes. So these cameras, were they motion activated? What are they? No, they're, well, they're actually regular. Like since this was 2012, ring cameras and, and were not as, yeah. So this was the wired in. Or maybe motion sensitive? Yes. I guess what he must have gone somehow and found the files of the inside cameras and destroyed them. He took the hard drive that it was downloaded to the computer part of it and burned it in a fire. But as you say, the outside camera still picked up on her leaving with the two children. Yes. So Lisa, again, had, had nowhere to go, but she was also, she was scared to death. Any loud vehicle, because she said that her husband's truck was loud. Mm-hmm. She knew that it was him coming. So she went into the woods with the little girls and she could hear him driving up and down the streets looking for her. So she was afraid to move. So she stayed in the in in the woods with the little girls for, like I said, two nights and three days to where mm. she knew that she had to risk it and come out and get help. Um, and, and when she did, like I said, she flagged down a, a teacher who stopped and picked her up and probably saved her life. I guess so. Oh. But Lisa, in the course of my interview with her, she she had that part of the story, but she also told, like I said, she just blurted out seven years worth of abuse. And um, me as an investigator, I'm looking at her and I'm I'm trying to to take all all of this in as to you know what what actually had all occurred. But in in the course of her story he would shoot her with a pellet gun and she had pellets that had grown over that were still in her leg. Oh, they're still in there. Oh, oh. he had uh, stabbed her in the upper thigh, her upper thigh area. Um, and that healed on its own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there was a lot of, you know, so much stuff and abuse that it was just unbelievable, you know, to me. But like I said, when we went into the house, it it was laid out. I mean, the wires, you know, the bat, um, the computers, the computers on the inside of the house, the, the locks on the bedroom, the um, end of the bedroom, uh, which would have been the master bathroom, in this house 
was converted into like, I, I don't even know. It was just like a computer layout of, of everything where he would monitor her. Um, the, one of the, um, really peculiar things in this story was the oldest daughter was turned against her pretty much. Oh, right. Uh, Maybe it's a matter of survival, you think? Well, I, I, like that's what dad wanted. So I better go along with probably, it and make friends with yeah, your captors. She probably just didn't know any better. So he, he would fill the daughter's head with so much stuff of what a terrible mother she was. And, um, right. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's a go-to way to do it. Yes. Sure. Um, so the only way that Lisa was ever allowed to go to the store is, um, is that the oldest daughter went now, Lisa, did not have a cell phone of her own, but the youngest daughter, I mean, the oldest daughter had a cell phone where she would stay on the phone with dad. And, um, uh, as the story goes that Lisa was not even allowed to speak to the cashiers or the daughter would tell dad and then there would be repercussions had she done that. Uh-huh. Gee, that's awful. Okay. Oh, uh. So, um, especially since the hospital told me that they were going to stay pretty much locked down until we got Josh. Um, so we organized our, our SWAT members, um, together. Um, I got the, the arrest warrant. I met the justice of the peace again, a rural area <laughs> in the middle of the night where he signed um, the search warrant for Josh and his, his original bond was $500,000. Mm-hmm. So we went. Now, how does that translate? It's $500,000. How does that translate into how much money would someone have to come up with to actually pay for that? Well, so Cause it's not 500,000. It's like 10% or typically something. Typically it's 10%. Um, now some, some okay. bondsmen, will charge different. It's not a, a, usually a set thing with a bondsman. Um, they may make it higher because of a risk, but in general it's 10%. So he would have had to come up okay. with, you know, $50,000 at, at that point. Um, so, and he would have had his house as collateral. I guess he would, you know, depending on the value of the house at the time. Mm-hmm. What did he do for a living? You know, at this you know time, what? This to man. be honest with I would just say he's a laborer because I don't remember. I don't even think that he kept a job for a long time. Um, and, and if I, again, like I said, this has been <laughs> 11 years. Um, yes. But I do remember Lisa telling me that um, he had lost the job and money was becoming an issue, which also made the abuse worse, you know, so he would... You know, I mean, he would honestly, in my opinion, turn his failures against her, you know, to blame her. And sure. Yeah, sure. Someone's got to pay for his miserable yes. life. So, um, yes. I mean, like I said, in the, here in Lisa's story, it's it's almost textbook of of how the whole thing came together. I mean, the isolation, you know, using the children against her, against her. Um, mm-hmm getting her away from her family, uh, how it, even, you know, accusing her of having affairs, even though she wasn't really even allowed to leave the house. Mm -hmm. A lot of weapons around. That's usually on the list of, uh, you know, uh, lethality assessment. That's on the the list of those, right? Absolutely. In and out of jobs, as you say, that's on the lethality assessment. He had issues with drugs, which also was a big indicator of just how, sadistic he got in his abuse. Part of what Lisa told me in my original interview with her was because she was so afraid is that he would continuously tell her that he would kill her and he would, there was nothing that 15 acres couldn't hide, that he would take her on, on the acreage. And, They'll never find you. Yep. And he said, and then if you call the police, they'll never find me. So she had a fear that he was going to get away and disappear while I interviewed Lisa in the hospital, the story that she was telling was 
purely out of sense of desperation and fear. You could see it on her. She was genuinely desperate and afraid, probably more than anyone I've ever seen. She knew that had Josh came back and she was there, she was going to die that day. And based off of everything that he had told her, he would bury her and nobody would ever find her. And of course, she had no family that had seen her for five years, so she probably wouldn't have been missed. Not for a long, long time. Yes, you're right. Yes. And like I said, usually in domestic violence cases, we've at least seen, you know, had calls at the house. When it comes to couples, a lot of times there's been like a pattern. Unfortunately, a lot of times women will, will try to drop the charges. But in Lisa's case, there was never a call, never any calls to the residents of anything. Again, being in a rural location, even no neighbors to call if they had heard or seen anything. But she didn't have a landline there either, right? I, w- I would think with this guy. She did not have a landline. She did not have a landline. She didn't have a phone she could take a call. Nope. For that matter. No. And this guy's got a cell phone and the oldest daughter has a cell phone, so they're the only ones that communicate with anybody. Yes. Well, that establishes something. So what do you do now? She's in the hospital. She's trying to recover. How long is she in there? She must be there a long time. I can't remember the amount of time she was in ICU, but she was in ICU in some of that time. Um, did, did they try to do take the pellets out and do all these other things while they had her? Yes, and they, uh, they had to do skin grafts for her head. Uh. And, you know, again, after getting out of the hospital, in and, and a quick story, during this investigation, I had to have emergency appendix. Oh. Appendicitis. I can't appendix taken out. So, I But Lisa had gotten out of the hospital, and she was so grateful. And to me, I'd, I'd done nothing, you know, but my job. But she learned that I was I had to have my appendix out. And when I came back to work, she had sent flowers to my job. Oh, what a person. Wishing me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where did she go when she came out? She obviously didn't go back to the house. She reunited with her with her mother in the hospital. She she knew her mother's phone number still and her mother still had the phone number and local law enforcement where her mother lived, contacted her mother and told her that she was in the hospital. She actually went and lived in the house with her adoptive mother? Afterwards, yes. For a short, yes. I mean, wasn't there a fear that Josh would come knocking? Well, by this point, so... Uh, or you had him, I guess, by then, right? Yes. You had him? Yes, we had had him, but okay. our district judge decided that the $500,000 was an excessive bond. Oh, Really? So she lowered the bond to $100,000. So Josh was able to bond out on the $100,000 with stipulations of wearing a a leg monitor. He's got the leg monitor. Is he told where he can and cannot go? Yes. You can't get within 500 feet of her? Well, at that time, she was still in the hospital. Oh. He was not supposed to have known where she was in the hospital, but he took his leg monitor off and was found near the hospital when we got him. In that course of the first arrest warrant that I had for him, I was able to put together a timeline of the other events and was able to get additional warrants based on the other accounts of the abuse. So I picked him up on the other warrants and then he had another bond set and he was never able to get out after that. Where was he picked up? On the street near the hospital. Really? I spoke to Josh when he he got picked up, and he claimed that he was job searching. That's unbelievable. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. What a coincidence to be so close to where she was. Yes. Gee. What was his attitude when he was picked up? I mean, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Was he doing this kind of thing? He had a very arrogant attitude through through the whole ordeal. He didn't say much, but he just, he was just very arrogant during the whole thing. Another thing, and and again, I know I'm all over the place, but when Lisa was taken to the hospital, Child Protective Services took her other children for safety. All three? No, just two. So Josh still had the the oldest one. Still had the seven-year-old. Yes, because he he got her from school. So again, we had a really a sense of urgency for the daughter's safety, especially. So that was another reason we went that night and... And we worked until we were a- we was able to l- locate him. He wasn't at his home. He was at his brother's home with a daughter. So we we did arrest him that night. Child Protective Services, again, took 
the oldest daughter and put them in temporary foster care while Lisa was recovering, that sort of thing. So Lisa gets out of the hospital, and it's my understanding. She does go back, and she's with her mom. Lisa's adopted mom could not have the kids at the time with Lisa there. So, I mean, basically, Lisa really got punished for being a victim, you know, and having the kids taken away because in Child Protective Services' eyes, she subjected them to the, you know, being a part of the abuse. They were not abused, but Lisa not having any other family anywhere could only go to her mother's. So her mother couldn't have the kids because she had Lisa. Yes. Yes, right. I understand. And Lisa, you know, she had quite uh, a long road of rehabilitation physically, emotionally. She had a lot she was dealing with as well. And in that meantime, they had found a temporary foster family, a young couple for the girls. Lisa eventually made the decision to let the other couple adopt the kids Boy, that's hard. Because that's Lisa, hard. yeah. And really she did it out of, you know, just pure love for her girls that she didn't have a good work history. She was having to recover physically, emotionally. Again, I would say that a lot of times people that survive such a horrific ordeal, people think that they just walk away and life's fine after that, but they don't, they don't realize, you know, there's a lot of emotional healing in that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of deep damage going on there that uh yes all the healing in the world's not going to bring her back to her pre 20 year old self before josh came along and she was she was able to recognize that herself i mean that just shows how selfless she really was and how much she cared for her daughters but in that stipulation the the family has let her be in their lives that is really a great selfless mother to just say you know what my situation is beyond my capabilities and so i rather have you alive in good shape, maybe with the possibility of a nice life, because right now over here, this is not the time, you know, I'm trying to recover. And I guess they were adopted and they're still adopted by the same people, I would think, right? Yes. So they were adopted by the same family that was the original foster parents of them. They adopted just two of them or not all three, right? They adopted all three girls. All three, even the seven-year-old. Yes. Okay. I didn't see that happening. In that agreement, the adopted family was gracious enough to allow Lisa to remain a part of the girls' lives. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so she, you know, could get them holidays. And again, we're looking at 11 years later, she's still in the girls' lives. The good news is, is that Lisa is a survivor, in my opinion, and she has since. She got jobs. And she's remarried to a guy that's really good to her. Oh, great. So, you know, she's, she probably, she had a long recovery, but she recovered and, and is living a normal life now. Did this guy plead guilty to some charges or this went through the court system all the way, the trial, the whole thing or? No. So Josh was arrested the second time where he was not able to make bond. And that is where he remained in jail. And he ultimately took a plea deal for 40 years. 40 years. He took a plea for 40? Yes. And because it's aggravated in Texas, he would not be eligible for parole for 20 years of that, at least. Wow. Good. That's fair. That's... Yes. So he's got, but... He would be up for parole, I guess, in nine years from now. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Has he tried to make any contact with her since he's been in? I really want to say I don't believe so. And if he had, I would really think that Lisa being the person that she is would not reach back out to him. When she freed herself from Josh, she freed herself from Josh. So you and she have kept in touch over all these years? Yes. Yes. Who initiated that? Really, the way that it initially started out was Lisa's story made the news and got the attention of, I mean, honestly, a lot of people nationwide. Her story was on Anderson Cooper. There's been two shows on Investigation Discovery. What would happen and how we kind of reached back out was the uh, producers of, I believe it was one of the shows on Investigation Discovery, reached out to me and wanted to do a show on Lisa's story. So that's kind of how we connected back with each other. And then thanks to social media, I can still see her life and 
reach out to her, you know, and speak to her from time to time. Is she still in Texas? She's still in Texas. She's in, she's in East Texas still where this happened. And I'm currently now in what you consider Central Texas near Waco. There's just a breathtaking story. I mean, just, I know this is such a, what would seem to be an insignificant detail, but what would you guess she weighs today? I mean, she was in her low 80s or so. What would be her normal weight, would you think? After she recovered and got healthy, I would say maybe 150 pounds. Really? Yeah, a a good healthy weight. So it also, it just corroborates Lisa's story even more to where you see how small she was. And then you see her healthy and she's 150 pounds, I would guess. Her story is being as, I guess you say the word crazy as it was. It was a lengthy investigation for me because there was just so much to it. But I was able to, in law enforcement, what we call corroborating her story. So a lot of times in, in situations like this, as an investigator, you may have just he said, she said. I was thinking that during this, but this was so over the top. Yes. Gets to be pretty obvious who's doing what. And so what's important, even for law enforcement that responds to domestic violence, is keeping that in mind. What you see at that house may be all you get later. Do you see the house damaged, holes in the walls? Things that you may not see that's important at the time may come in and is corroborating the story that, that the victim's telling you that's going on. In Lisa's case, going into her house, I've said it before, is when I went into her house, it was a crime scene. It was still Mm. a fresh crime scene. And that crime scene tells a story, and that story corroborated what Lisa said. There was blood splatter on the wall still. The The Romex wire with hair and blood in it. Those things, those physical evidence that we can get like that is also helpful in Josh having to plead for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So those things in cooperating a victim's story is, is very important. The physical evidence is the most important thing that, that you can get if you can get those things. As an investigator, being tasked that if, if there were witnesses, take the time to go back and speak to people and, and cooperate that person's story with someone else, especially in this case, there was an independent witness that pick Lisa up on the road. So all those things and gathering all those evidence is time consuming. And those cases are well worth it when you know that he is going to be away for 40 years, hopefully 40 years. Yes. And not to victimize anybody else in in the meantime. For somebody who is a victim, let's say a current victim listening to this, what would you tell that person about collecting evidence even as we speak. It's one thing to write down, okay, he came into the house at 9, 10 this morning, and he was yelling at me, and then he threw this lamp, and it hit the wall over here, and then he hit me on my leg and my arm, and different things like that. But if this winds up in front of a judge or winds up in front of a jury, you know, what things are going to get thrown out, what things hold up, and what's the best people can do? Because there are plenty of stories, we've had them on here, where people have been through all kinds of traumatic situations, but they didn't think to collect evidence. They didn't know how to collect evidence, you know, which is tricky too, when you have the perpetrator still around. It's not like you can say, can you go get busy watching a game while I'm taking pictures of a wall over there before you scrub it? And I, you know, I want to do some video of some things. And so what's the best you can do for somebody who doesn't do this for a living? And it just happened to you or a family member. The first thing, if if it was my loved one myself, what I would say is your safety is most important. Don't do anything that is going to jeopardize your safety. Right. Don't jeopardize your safety if it's going to mean you getting that evidence is gonna is gonna cause something horrible to happen. If you get the opportunity, and especially today's times, we have so much more technology that we didn't have years ago. So you you have your cell phones. If you, In Lisa's case, she didn't have that. But really, most importantly, is is video video recording. I've had victims who recorded that the rage and the, and the verbal abuse and the things that were said. Text, a lot of times, the person will text them things. They save those things. Save everything that you can safely save. 
as far as physical evidence goes. If you can safely take pictures of your injuries to where if you can't get to a doctor, take pictures of your injuries. I've had people come to me where they've showed where they have gone to a friend and that friend has taken those pictures. So as far as law enforcement goes, we now have these pictures, but we have a friend that testifies in behalf of what they were told, what they seen as well. Physical evidence is always the best. Witness statements can sometimes be construed as hearsay, but still that's up for the courts to hash out what is acceptable and not acceptable. I can always say you can never get enough. In these days and times, if you have your phone to where you can take pictures, record things, and reach out and tell people what's going on. Well, when someone has, let's say they have bruises on their arms or legs and they take pictures, you know, the guy's out of the room, he's out of the house or something like that. And you take these pictures. Obviously, if you leave him on the phone and he gets a hold of your phone, he's going to take them off of there. So when they're trying to store these pictures, what do you think is uh, like to collect them and email themselves or email somebody else? Or I mean, what's a good way to store them? Do you think what's good advice? Well, as far as that too, and again, in take if you're having to take pictures or you're taking pictures for a friend, one of the things that is very important is to have that friend take a whole picture of your body, your face and everything. So that picture can show proof that, hey, this is me. Have that friend or if you're doing it yourself to remember to try to take the pictures if possible of your face. And if the uh, injuries are shown on your arms, if you can get, you know, your face or what you're wearing in it, I would definitely suggest if you have a friend, send those to a friend by text or email. If you do not have that, you know, and you have a, a, say, an email address that is not known by him or connected by him to be able to safely do get that thing. Or if you can get a flash drive and download these images to where you can take them off to where he can't see them, but it'll be saved as well. Have you also touched upon cases where, because it's, let's face it, most of the time by a large number, it's a male injuring a female or a male injuring another male, but it's physically not so much female injuring male or another female, maybe, I don't know, but at least with the male-female scenario, have you had those where it's the other way around? It's females physically, besides emotionally, injuring the male? In fact, I had one not not too long ago. Basically, what I find a lot of times with males being the victims, they definitely don't reach out as near as often. It probably happens more than we know about because a man is very reluctant to reach out. But it does happen. I will say, speaking, I'm more of a victim's advocate kind of law enforcement. And me talking to a victim where a male was a victim, he told me that the deputies that took the report, and it's probably nothing they did intentionally, but they made him feel more or less, in his words, less than a man because he was reporting it. Like, how could you let a woman do that to you? Yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... Again, it may not be intentional, but the way that sometimes in law enforcement, the way that we make a victim feel is really is really an important thing that determines what they may do in the future. You know, if they don't feel believed, they're not going to call again. And, and that's really a sad thing. That's a very good point. I've actually had a recent case where a male was a victim and the female stabbed him several times. He, even after that... He did not want to press charges on him. Do you think he just didn't want to follow it down the path of having to talk about it and it keeps coming up and it's like the world's going to know about this thing and I'll just figure out a way to heal and move on? I think even in his case, it was, you know, like we often hear in this work that they love him and they want him to change. In her case, she had children from another marriage. Oh, and he didn't want her to go to jail and the kids not have their mom, in, in his words. That makes a lot of sense, too. Did he eventually just say, I can't do this anymore, or did he still hang in there? It was kind of an off and on, again, situation with them. And to this day, it, it still is. We I had yet another case where a man was stabbed. They had several children, one of those children being special needs. And in Texas, the state picks up the charge, even if the person does not want to file charges. 
the state picks up the charges in our county particularly we are very big on issuing emergency protective orders and especially if a, in a case where a weapon is used we will issue a protective order in this particular case a protective order was issued on the wife the man could not work he was the support of the family and now a man that's not used to taking care of his children alone including a special need kid came up and signed for an affidavit of non-prosecution and is just like i i have to work and i can't take care of these kids by myself he couldn't work because of the injury that he was inflicted on him because he had he had to take care he had to stay home with the kids where she was normally staying home with the kids I mean, was it because of his injury from her that he couldn't work no he healed from his injury okay. So, yeah, it was just that he had three kids. And, and again, one of those kids, I believe, had like autism. And she cared for the children okay. for the most part. So y you had the stories that are similar with male victims as you do with female victims. What do the police do, let's just say in Texas? Let's say that there's some domestic situation happening in a house, okay? And it's it gets physical. You know, there are pieces of furniture flying around. And let's just say in this case, she's getting beat up to some degree and she makes her way, let's say, to a phone and the police arrive. What are they going to do? I would imagine they would separate them, talk with them individually, but are they going to separate them for the rest of that evening? Is anybody going to wind up sitting in a cell somewhere? If there's such a thing as typical, what's today's procedure? As far as family violence goes, it's definitely there's no typical procedure. Mm -hmm. And each county or each department has their own, we'll say, best practices and how they want things handled. The county that I work for is very uh, adamant of trying to keep people safe. So if they go and there is reason to believe that a crime has occurred and that crime is domestic violence, they will arrest the, in our case, we call what we call a, the aggressor in that. So safety in, in our county is on the forefront of what, what is done. In severe cases of domestic violence, our investigators, including myself, were on call. So if the deputies have any questions, they, they reach out to us and we can either come out or we can guide them, you know, on the phone. Mm -hmm. But for our department, the best course of action is, is definitely the safety of the victim. And if there is evidence that or probable cause a, a crime has been committed, despite whether the victim wants to pursue charges or not, in fact, we don't want our deputies to even ask in the case of domestic violence, if the victim wants to pursue charges. That really takes a lot off of the victim. And in the long run, a safety aspect. So mm -hmm. if there's a crime committed and there's reason to believe the aggressor is going to go to jail. How would you say 911 calls are handled today in terms of, I'm thinking they're recorded, I know, but they could wind up in a courtroom one day. Do you think 911 calls today are handled differently from 21 years ago when you first joined up? Absolutely. I think as far as law enforcement and the justice system as a whole has made a lot of improvements, I still say that there's a lot of improvements to be made. The basic view of domestic violence also in law enforcement has changed a whole lot. And dispatchers now are trained to do more as far as ask, you know, the questions that need to be asked, stay on the phone with someone and relay the messages to the responding officers if there's weapons in the house or what they're going into to expect. Because in, in law enforcement, one of the most dangerous calls to go to is a domestic violence situation. You'll see those on the news from time to time where they, they arrive and, and it's a shootout from the house to the front lawn. And there's also training more now. There's a training for us in law enforcement, and that is for dispatchers as well. It's what we call Safe Fic that gives extra training in, in cases of domestic violence. It's called Safe Fic? It's a safe, S-A-F-V-I-C, Safe Vic training. Safe, safe Victim? Yes, is that yes. What it, it stands for okay. Safe Victim. It is a 24-hour course that encompasses family violence and sexual assault. 
that we also attend and encourage our deputies and our dispatchers to attend as well. I mean, I'm glad they're doing all those things. I can't speak for all the other states, but, you know, again, like I said, with Texas law, the victim does not have to press charges. The state presses charges, I think, is a huge help for law enforcement as well because you... Yes. You know, that is so much on a victim to where they have that burden to say whether they want to press charges or not and suffer repercussions or the guilt of sending the father of their children to jail. Also in our county, we have victims advocates that whenever the deputies respond to domestic violence, that they're provided with this information to where they can reach out to an advocate. And that kind of helps along the way with them. So the advocate works with law enforcement along with the victim all the way through the court system if it comes there. Yes, we work with the victim advocate on a few occasions and they were immensely helpful, very knowledgeable. You know, you have a million questions, but you don't think of them all the first day. So it's nice to be able to call people up who've been there and have seen it and can give you some guidance from a knowledgeable place and they're not emotionally involved with your case. So they're pretty objective about what they tell you. Yes. Christine, is there anything else you wanted to tell us today that you'd like to add at this point? I know for me, even as a, and and coming on your podcast, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts in reference to domestic violence or sexual assault or, and for me, it's just a continued education. And, And more or less what I look at is how I can go at it in a law enforcement way of not re-victimizing the person. I, I want to hear those stories, how they were made to feel. So I don't go in and unintentionally sometimes make a person feel that way. So that's actually how I said in course of how I started listening to your podcast is in my car. I just listen to things and learn and learn from people's stories to better my own job. Yeah, you had a note in your very first email that you had actually, you said, listening to your podcast for several months, I use it as continued education for my work as an investigator in crimes against people. Yes. That's the way you put it. So that really caught my eye. I thought that was, that was a nice compliment, you know, because we're kind of trying to figure out things as we go along doing the best we can and, and to have highly informed people paying attention to what that what we're trying to do really means a lot and, you know, kind of gives us a sense we're on the right track. So that's, that really felt good. Yes. And like I said, it does. It's what you're doing is, is not only helping the person that may be feeling alone right now and they hear stories and they see that their story is not so unusual and gives them courage that they may need. Mm -hmm. There's also people like me out there that are listening to these stories and, using it for my work as well. So what you're doing is being carried on in ways that you probably don't even realize. I know. It's a wonderful thing. Well, look, Christine, thank you for allowing us to see inside your world. And, you know, it's a place where we don't get to go and probably don't want to go, to be really completely honest. But you put yourself there, and I want to acknowledge this, and I just want to thank you for myself and behalf of those who are listening in that that you stopped your busy days to talk with us for a couple hours. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks to my guests for offering their stories on the When Dating Hurts podcast. This is your platform where victims, survivors, and others who have experience with domestic violence can freely add what they have witnessed. Through these stories, although challenging to listen to, we underscore the prevalence and horrific behavior of abusers over their targets and victims. With knowledge comes enlightenment and empowerment. If you feel your story should be included on this podcast, please email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.